1: must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room?
0: And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. Uh, I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Joined for the last podcast of the year today by Josh Blank. Not the last podcast of all, Tom. But last of the year or of all podcasts. But the last version of this podcast for this year, I'm practicing being precise. Yeah. And I'm joined by Josh Blank, Research Director of the Texas Politics Project. Hello, hello. So we've gone round and round about things we could talk about here. We posted a bunch of new content uh, at the blog site. We've we put some pressure
1: the, on ourselves at, at this the, end of the year thing.
0: Right. At the, you know, yeah. A, a lot of things that had been sitting around unfinished on my desk mainly, uh, we sort of have gotten out. To, we're two for three right now and maybe even get one more out. Um, so we urge you to go to texaspolitics.utexas.edu. We've got a post on legislative turnover that has a the fruit of a lot of kind of digging into stuff that Josh has done. And then we have a piece on negative partisanship, which we've been promising slash threatening to finish up and release for a long time. And for those of you that follow Texas government politics, but even national politics, you know, we went back and looked at some of our data on Uh, the approval level that that the approval or disapproval that Texas grant Texans grant the two political parties and constructed a view of how negative partisanship works along with definitions and again if you listen to this podcast we've talked about this a bit but now we kind of produce the data and there's a lot of interesting stuff in there we may get circle back to that later today but well I think we ought to kind of talk about in in the spirit of a year-end roundup and Thinking about, you know, where we stand. I mean, this, is, this happens all the time, and some of it's just manufactured. You know, let's get some lists in the can so nobody has to work the last week. Of the I love year a good listicle in the media, and we. This isn't quite that, but it, there's a reasonable impulse to that, particularly where we are in the political trajectory right now. To be thinking about what we've seen this year, what's coming up, and what in Texas will be, you know, a very interesting election year. You know, I think two big themes have jumped out at me in coverage in the of politics, and there's a million things going on right now. Other things that could be picked, but one is uh, at the national level. This, you know, resurgence of a discussion about democracy in the United States being in danger, how well it's functioning. I think that there was a lot of stuff written during the Trump presidency about democracy being imperiled in the United States. We saw a little bit of a, a very you know slight I went into a ban slightly, but then the January sixth insurrection has really you know resurrected that discussion, but now given it a you know a different kind of tilt.
1: Well, and I think the thing that's know. really what's really brought it up, I think uh, in in national discussions in the last few weeks is as we get to candidate filing deadlines for the primaries, both in Texas and elsewhere. What you're seeing is a right. lot more, you know, I guess I'll just put I'll just put it this way, you know, for now you know, potentially, let's say candidates for offices that oversee elections in a lot of states and localities where, you know, the candidates are expressing what we could say are anti-democratic leanings.
0: Right. You know, the idea that, you know, we're going to take the, you know, that there are efforts to, as we've talked about in here, affect the selection of these election administrators, which have heretofore been seen largely, and I don't want to be naive about this, but, you know, largely, you know, administrative positions with pretty clear lane markers in terms of and, and, and a degree of buffering from partisan politics, you know, that seems to be changing. And also, of course, the January 6th commission, um, you know, has been, or committee has been getting, you know, a lot more internal looks at what unfolded after Mm -hmm. the last national election, you know, so all of that I think is feeding this discussion again. Uh, You know, we're not going to overly dwell on that, but it, it is. It does have manifestations in Texas, and it does seem to me to connect with the other big thing that's been more of a local angle story from the Texas perspective, but fueled by national coverage. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it, you know metaphors catch on in media coverage. But something that's really caught on mm-hmm. uh, is Greg Abbott is a weather vane. Now, there's you know that comes from the cover of the, the new issue of Texas Monthly, which is their year-end bum steer issue, which in which they take the opportunity to poke fun at, you know, absurd, you know, often mordantly absurd things that have happened in the state, and they play it for laughs. And it's a usually a multiple-person effort with both some Texas Monthly Staff writers, some contract writers. Um, but, you know, they put a Greg Abbott on the cover as the bum steer of the year, portrayed as, you know, a, a weather vane with icicles hanging off of it. But this comes after... You know, two national stories, one in the LA Times by Mark Baraback, who's been a guest on the podcast before, the other in an article in the New York Times by one of the new Texas correspondents, I think it was by David Goodman, in which this notion of Abbott as following whatever way the wind blows recurred in both of those stories. So all of a sudden, you've got this notion uh, that has, you know, we've talked about in here, and this certainly been a matter of discussion in internal politics of the state Mm -hmm. that greg abbott is kind of very focused on re-election yeah and that his public positions and his policy preferences over time have changed according to that context right (laughs) so you know we we don't want to we could deconstruct this to death as we were talking about this going into this we already have once today yeah (laughs) you know and you can you can take the trope and you know Deconstruct it to the point of you know people turning it off or just not making any sense or you devolving into like no real point. But it does raise some issues about some interesting issues about how Abbott is governed. Yeah, how he's man, how he's governed uh, in terms of what the upcoming election and the political landscape. And it points to institutional factors. It points to political factors. It points to things that are in the political system and the political economy right now that. The weather of thing captures well in some ways, but not in others, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, just as a, as a as an initial reaction, and you know, the weather vane thing has a certain—I mean, like it has a it has a resonance because I think people. are... By the way, if
0: you want to play a, a drinking game with today's <laughs> podcast, I'd say weather vane's probably. Yeah, weather vein's be a good a one. word if you're looking to knock off early. Not endogenous. Okay,
1: so I mean, yeah, and the weather vane, you know, trope as you put it is right. I mean, sometimes it's useful, and I think you know the thing about tropes and the thing about it in this case is that like I think it, it lands well with people because what, what are you saying? Oh, this is a politician who's just kind of you know flopping around the wind. But it sort of just ignores i mean all kinds of layers of, of complexity around this and even just you know i think just some simple you know gut checks yeah in that you know first and foremost does the wind ever blow in the opposite direction for abbott well not really right is it the case that you know within his party you know the wind is blowing in multiple directions and he's like well not really and so there's <laughs> this i mean i think the way you put it earlier when we were talking about this the first time it's like yeah it's like a it's like a weather vane in a wind tunnel you right. know and, and that's the thing it's so it's, it's sort of useful, but it, it also, you know, it, it really belies a lot of the complexity here, which is that it's not so much – or really just – yeah, let would say that's complexity or the nuance, which is that, you know, we were talk, kind of talking about this earlier about the, the nature of the Republican coalition and the fact – and what strikes me about it is it's not so much that, you know, he's – you know, the weather has changed so much. It's just that, you know, the the ability to inflict – uh, I mean, let me with this. God, we're going to kill this freaking metaphor. Again, I'm already killing it. But the ability to, uh, you know, activate the weather vane. I don't know what the word is for activation of a weather vane. Right. But the ability to have her wind blow through vane, it just doesn't take much.
0: Yeah. Makes it sound like a digital weather. I vane. know. Um, but, it,
1: but it just doesn't take much. Right. And so the issue here is that, you know, it's not as though most Republicans in the state who are the majority party who Abbott is primarily catering to, which is not different right. than in any other state with any other partisan politicians. The thing is, is that there have always been a number of checks sort of on the most extreme elements of the party directing policy to like basically their desired endpoints, which in often case are, are pretty extreme for the state. That kind of seems to have sort of gone out the window. Now, that's not a change of weather vane, you know, for saying What I was saying There's overlapping coalitions in the Republican Party that probably almost certainly hold relatively similar attitudes. The difference now is that, you know, when you go and say, well, you know, does a, someone who votes basically solely on abortion, are they, you know, pro-gun rights? Well, you know. Probably on yeah. average, they are pro gun rights. Do they think that we should have permitless carry? Maybe not entirely, but the permitless carry sort of, you know, Second Amendment absolutists seem to be driving the discussion now in a way. Same thing on abortion, right? You right. know, the idea that we would ban abortion in the state was, you know, it was conceived it was conceived of as political
0: suicide. I think for many right. well, years. Well, and, and that was the hook of the Baraback piece, right? And that's I the mean, hook of the Baraback piece, right? Right. I mean, I mean, that this column in the New York Times that Mark wrote. You know, and there was a great... You know, I love the journalistic sidelight of this. Which L.A. Is, Times. I'm, or L.A. Times, yes. Um, you know, which is that during the 2014 campaign, uh, apparently, you know, per, per Mark's column and per conversation with Mark, you know, he wrote a story that characterized Greg Abbott as opposing abortion rights and...
1: Except in the case of dangers of the life of the mother. Right. And, and, he, a-
0: and basically he got a correction from the, uh, you know, sort of a request slash pressure for a correction from the campaign, which the Times ultimately printed, which said that, you know, to wit, the now Governor Abbott uh, supported abortion rights prior to 20 weeks for any reason. Now, I was thinking about this and going back to the context, that is, you know, still when we were, there were efforts to just edge the viability standard Mm -hmm. down a little bit, 20 weeks was a little before- that at that point in time. But, you know, the marks column, you know, hinged on the fact that, you know, they strong-armed a correction out of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2014, seven years later, uh, Governor Abbott seemed to be, you know, perfectly willing to... Sign legislation that would, you know, outlaw, you know, that would, you know, outlaw abortion should Roe v. Wade be right. overturned. The trigger bill and this now infamous SBA with the six-week ban mm-hmm. and sort of saying and th- and that became kind of the vehicle for for the column to be about about Governor Abbott being flexible in his positions and you know and and I think on one end that's a you know it's an utterly fair characterization. Yeah. There's a lot of distance between those two positions right. and I think. You know the typical kind of candidate response, and I don't—I haven't seen any response to this. Um, you know, I think that that column got a little less attention in Texas than I would have thought, frankly. But you know, people can go back and discover it. But you know, it, it also you know sort of underlined the degree to which Abbott is willing to move. Mm-hmm. But also, as you were saying, within you know some set of parameters within a particular universe.
1: Yeah, and that's right. And, I mean, and then the idea that like, you know, Abbott's actions are somehow happening, you know, in a vacuum, not a wind tunnel right, on its own. I mean, I think all you have to do is look to the Senate and say, you know, and we talked about permitless carry earlier in the session. Patrick's first response to it was, well, we don't have the votes for that until it turned right. out that he did. And then they found the votes and then they went and they passed it. Right. And that was based on, you know, a, a similar characterization that he had, you know, portrayed or, you know in previous legislative sessions around permitless carry or constitutional carry or whatever right. you want to call it. And so I mean, clearly there's there are you know there's something going on here that's not just about you know Abbott and Abbott's positioning right. Abbott being you know a weather vane to this. I mean, there's a change going on in the political landscape in the way that yeah. you know we think about. It. We've you know I've said this before. I'll say it real again, real quick. I mean, I think one of the big factors, just from an electoral standpoint, is that you know Republicans aren't going to win elections in this state at this point by 15 to 25 points. Yeah. And That was not a reflection of you know the fa- of their advantage in the electorate. It's a reflection of a lot of things. A reflection of you know lack of Democratic candidates. You know uh asymmetry in you know the organization and the and the right. resources of the two parties. There's a lot of stuff going on there. But I mean if you think about but generally speaking, you know, Abbott was Abbott and other Republicans, Rick Perry go back, you know, they could get some support from Democrats. They could get a lot of support from independents. And even and even in some cases, Democrats just not voting right. was fine. I think those days are basically over at this point. I mean as long as Democrats can at least put up a good candidate in some good campaigns, they're going to turn out Uh, they're going to turn out their partisans. And so at this point, you know, Abbott's universe of voters have changed. I mean, over this time period now, is that him being a weather vane or is that him saying, look, I don't win elections by getting 10 you know, 5% of the Democrats and, you know, a majority of independents at this point. I win elections by turning out every Republican voter.
0: Yeah. And and I think that, you know, a piece of, you know, the historical context here that does, I think, provide a little more subtlety than just saying, hey, look, this guy, all he does is panders. I mean, A, there's a, you know, there's a broader question about, well, you know, doesn't the system invite you to pander to some degree? You know, and I think so. The pandering piece has always been a little. But but also, I mean, you know, one of the things that I was, you know, and obviously I was really struck by this bear about Column, but it's because of, it really invites a revisiting the trajectory of things,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? I mean, in many ways, I mean, You know, Abbott came at kind of a watershed in terms of this discussion of, you know, how much do you have to appeal to the center slash center right as a Republican in a period of Republican dominance? And remember, in 2014, I mean, Republicans had been in charge for a decade, but the Perry governorship had actually seen the transition that really started what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Which is, I mean, I think you know there was a lot of attention paid when rick perry began in the late you know mid to late 2000s after his you know after his first full term after his first you know term and a half where it became clear that the political economy in the state the rise of you know more organized more powerful right wing and conservative interest groups mm-hmm. you know the continuing attenuation of the democratic party in the ways that you're talking about The weakening of the Democratic Party interest group universe in which, you know, the trial lawyers by this time had been decisively defeated or beat back by the tort reform forces and their allies in the business community. You were beginning to see more money pouring into oil and gas as a result of fracking. Mm -hmm. Declining union membership and laws. I mean, you know. All those things were really converging in... You know, a new kind of moment in which, increasingly, and, and again, Perry was the person who really innovated this. There was less attention to appealing to the middle or even trying to be bipartisan. Yeah, I mean, people would use the word bipartisan in the late 2000s, but they didn't really. It was it was window dressing. Yeah, and it was pretty clear that the kind of appeals that statewide Democrats and increasingly legislative Democrats were making was less keyed to this you know pragmatic texas you know golden age of texas politics middle mm-hmm. and i think that is why you know when we look at this now you have to think about you know the context and it, and it goes back to you know now we find ourselves with the move with the usual suspects as we explain this you know more polarized more ideologically sorted parties yeah negative partisanship yeah and i guess that's what makes me a little bit You know, an uncomfortable is even too strong a word. Yeah. You know, we were talking about political theory this morning on our walk to get coffee. Oh,
1: God, don't tell people that. I know, I know. If you guys
0: were in the studio, you see Josh, he's cringing Uh, a little bit, waiting to see what I'm going to say next. But there is a sense, and you kind of said this in a very concrete way when we started, but I mean, this kind of, to me, fleshes it out a little bit. You know, a real apt metaphor always obscures something. Yeah. Right? And in this, it's that kind of sense that, well... You know, and I'm not making excuses for anybody, either the columnist or the governor, Mm -hmm. but there is a sense in which when people go, you know, the governor, he's pandering to the Republicans. I'm like, and you know, the most extreme elements of his party, I kind of want to shrug and say, well, yeah, what do you, you know, do you expect something different now? To be fair, I would say that we've certainly expected something different. I think during the early days of the pandemic, we were you know, I think mildly or to guardedly critical of the response to COVID once it be, seemed to be driven by politics inside the Republican Party. And I would still stand by that critique. Yeah, sure. But I also think that, you know, we shouldn't be shocked that in this environment where, as you say, there's no Democratic Party or, you know, the the Democratic Party is is more viable and the, the state is more competitive overall, but there's still not much of a shot mm-hmm. that the
1: that the, not the, the, know, the, the Democrats level. can
0: stand up to the Republicans in 2022 and trade blows on an even basis, right? That's just not going to happen. Nobody thinks that's going to happen, even if the Democrats did wind up drafting uh, Beto O'Rourke, who's probably, you know, the best they got to offer at this point. right? Um, so, you know, this is going to happen.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think you know, thinking about the, the broad trajectory, I mean, you were bringing up the Perry years and, and you know, thinking about – you know, I sort of, I started much more closer to, to the, the transition there, right? Yeah. And what I think about is sort of two things is, is one, I think, you know, you can't discount the, the impact on Abbott of not coming up through the legislative process like right. Perry did. So, I mean, to the extent of, like, golden age of legislating, this idea of bipartisanship, whether it was true or not, or whether, you know, the nostalgia really accurately reflects it, ultimately, you know, Perry did come through the legislative process. And if you talk to people in the legislative process, there is kind of a sense that, you know, Abbott doesn't really – I don't want to say care, but grasp, you know, some of the constraints and the difficulties they face in that process. But also over the time frame, you know, the relationship between the big three has changed pretty dramatically. Right. And so there's that also. And it's interesting watching the way that, you know, I would say Abbott has really you could say he's pandering, but also it's like he's really grown. I mean, we talked about this back during the transition, the idea that, you know, Abbott's coming in. You know, given the sort of the marker that Perry's laid down for how powerful a governor can be in Texas, even though that's kind of against the historical norm, you know, the expectation was Abbott was going to try to fill those shoes. And really, you know, he has in each, you know, consecutive session, save with like, I would say a little bit of a a step back maybe in 2019 after the close elections, he has taken more and more of a role in each session in terms of sort of exerting himself. And the reason I bring up, you know, his lack of legislative experience, and we just talk about this more, but you know, when you're the attorney general and you you can see with Paxton. You get a lot of choice, (laughs) you know. You get a lot of choice in in picking your issues, in defining yourself for voters, and when you go out and you know drop a big lawsuit and press release, and and you know, in a way that in some ways, you know, you don't really get to do that as the governor. You know, a lot of the times you see like with COVID, you have to deal with this. So to some extent, is this you know, sort of? I mean, to me, it's not the idea that all of a sudden you know we're talking about Greg Abbott as weatherman. I mean, there's something that keeps coming to my head, and I'll just put it out there. I remember when he was running for that position, and we had done a, a a panel with a bunch of journalists, and I mean, you know, I think Abbott, you know, again, as Attorney General, he, you know, gets to really control. You know, that was the I wake up in the morning, I see the Obama yeah. administration. You know, very good brand at that point. And I remember asking this question, like, well, how conservative is Abbott? And I remember I think Grummer Jeffers was there. A couple of them was like, oh, he's conservative. Yeah, he's extremely conservative. Now, in those first couple of sessions, you know, Patrick came in, he consolidated power. Ultimately, you know, Strauss was in charge of the House, and that was sort of a cooling mechanism. And you've seen these dynamics change over time, and it's hard not, I mean, from my perspective, it's hard not to look at, like, where we are now and not say, this guy's, you know, kind of running the show at this point. As much yeah. as we talk about Patrick and his control over the Senate, I mean, Abbott just showed, I can keep you at the legislature in session for the entire year and tell you exactly what I want you to do. Right. It's hard to say that he's not the main player. And then going back to the institutional side of this again, you know, even if legislators are sort of unhappy with the direction, I'm not saying they are. He has such an infrastructure that he can lend them with his campaign account, with right. the research they do, that ultimately there's no reason for anybody to say boo to him in the party here because, you know, he's kind of exp- – he's, he's expressed his power pretty clearly. Right.
0: Here. Well, and I and I think, you know, some of this has been, you know, I, you know and I don't know – you know, it would be an interesting question for some of the people there. But, I mean, I think – it would be interesting to know – I think you're not giving the Abbott team too much credit to consider this strategic yeah. that – you know, as Patrick consolidated control of the Senate, mm-hmm. you know, basically, you know, apologies to my friends in the Senate, you know, brought the Senate to heel. Um, it made sense for the governor to have more in, you know, try to make more inroads in the house Yeah, through the things you were talking about. And I think, you know, I mean, there's a general sense out there, I think, in, in the Capitol community that. You know, a lot of House members do feel, you know, allegiant, beholden to <laughs>
1: whatever you loyal want.
0: to, wherever, you know, whatever the Venn diagram of some of these very right. different kinds of affects are to the governor. Yeah. And and that, you know, the governor has done a good job of playing you know the you know take taking advantage of the House Senate you know the baked in house senate dynamic that has gotten more baked in as as the Senate has become perceived as you know lieutenant uh, the lieutenant governor's
1: here we go Gary to drink and this is why the weather vane thing is just it's <laughs> just you know you're like well
0: i actually stayed away from it for a few know, minutes. no for a few I mean, minutes but this is where this idea for, for those of you that were looking forward to more I mean, drinking just, I'm sorry
1: but you just said the thing that I think is key which is you know I mean I it's hard not to look at all this and say look look this is This is strategic. I mean, you might I mean, look, you know, he's a strategic politician. He has a very strategic team around. He has a lot of information at his disposal. It's a lot of resources that he can deploy to his ends. And, you know, I the idea that, you know, he's being thrown around by the winds within the Republican Party. It's like, you know, it's not a wind it's a it's a gale force and if he weren't then he wouldn't be in office yeah I mean just you know as in a as a general you well know, yeah
0: and again one of the you know I mean and I think that's something that
1: and the margin for error that I, for that, I think has gotten smaller I mean we we're yeah. talking about this this morning too I mean I think you know to the extent that Donald Trump mobilized grievance as sort of a fuel for campaign, you know, especially in 2016, but even really throughout his presidency. I mean, what you kind of see now in some ways is that that grievance can extend not just to Democrats, not just to institutions, but within the Republican Party towards other Republicans who are not seen as, you know, sufficiently, I always say conservative at this point, loyal to the cause as it is being defined in the moment. moment, Which which is, 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 look,
0: very inflected by Donald Trump. And that kind of brings us to the democracy piece of this. It does, because, you know, I think that, you know, one of the factors that's hovering that we've touched on a couple times, but is, you know, and I think I said this last week, but I'm going to use the line again. The weakness of the Democratic Party has gone from being kind of an electoral condition mm-hmm. to a structural feature of the system yeah, that is exactly. having structural consequences.
1: Yeah. Say more. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean tease that out a little bit because. Uh, well,
0: I mean, you know, look, I mean. I, I, know, I, think I, I know what you mean. It's but... one thing to say, well, the Democrats, they came close. They didn't, you know. But I mean, when, you know, they, they almost won maybe next time and they're growing and the state's getting competitive and the state becoming get competitive at the state level is true enough. But, you know, part of the long-term ineffectuality of, of the Democratic Party as a political force and as an institutional force is that it has skewed the perceptions. I mean, the Democrats have helped build the wind tunnel. Yeah. You know, and they're not in it. And that's not blaming any individual Democrats, but to the extent that that is now an assumed part of the feature, of the system is what I mean by it's now become a structural part of the system, and it, you know, that's what enables us to talk again and again about the fact, and for people to raise the point again and again that look, there are all these policies that got passed in the last year in Texas that don't enjoy that there's no evidence that they enjoy majority support. Yeah. In the population at large in the electorate at large. And yet Republicans are pursuing these policies, you know, Republican incumbents with great gusto. And that's not a, I mean, we'll see. It may turn out to be a mistake, but I'll, I'll be surprised if the day after the election on, uh, in November of 2022, everybody wakes up and goes, wow, the Republicans really dropped the ball with all that conservative legislation because the Democrats just made a bunch of gains. Yeah. I don't think anybody expects that certainly
1: not after redistricting
0: and and so redistricting and the other institutional piece and that's and that's the other that's another structural piece of it that's exactly right so you know it's not you know you're not affecting public discourse or yeah. you're having a not much of an effect on public discourse you're certainly having no institutional leverage yeah and that absence of institutional leverage has provided Republican incumbents and the Republican party and in the Republican coalition behind the party, um, with more means of perpetuating their rule and increasing the probability that you're going to see more of these policies that people say, you know, and again, going back and tying it to the pandemic. I mean, this is very practical. We're not just talking about the principle of democracy or a little erosion around the edges. We're talking about real policy consequences you know, when you don't have, when you have such a stilted discussion that is, you know, that is driven by that, you know, this is, by, the, I, by these kinds of forces. I
1: didn't think we'd get anywhere with this conversation, but I feel like maybe we are because, I mean, the way that I'm now I'm thinking about this is, you know, the, the problem. of little faith. Well, yeah. <laughs> the the pro- The problem with, I mean, through sort of the weather vane argument again, you know, I mean, one of the things here is, is you kind of say, well, no. I mean, look, I was always super conservative, but there were constraints that were clearly placed on him. Whether that was, you know, a more moderate House that ended right. up sort of cooling things, he used that very strategically to his yeah. advantage through some debates. Whether it was, uh, you know, basically his ability to affect the legislature, which he's he's definitely gotten better at with yes. each you know as, process, as governors do as governors do right or um, they don't last and you know he's consolidated his power in the governorship which takes time in texas for a lot of you know institutional factors and so really i mean in some ways it's not so much i mean i guess the thing is like it's not so much that he's a weather vane it's that you know essentially the constraints that didn't allow him to sort of you know operate within sort of a full strategic you know uh, within the full strategic space available to him like well they're gone And so, you know, he's not worried about independent voters leaving him because they left. You know, he's not worried about, you know, the fact that, like, he's not going to get some passive Democratic support because it's gone. And so all these things that were kind of, you know, he's not worried about Democrats making, you know, big inroads because they haven't. And also because now that we've done redistricting, it reinforces all this stuff, both for him, but also for all the other actors around him in terms of the fact that, you know, now, you know, you were running in a district that was, you know, 60 percent Trump and now it's 78 percent Trump. You
0: know, I mean, that just yeah, that and, just changes
1: the calculations.
0: Yeah. And, the, you know, in the you know, and I don't want to leave the impression that this is all I mean, you know, oh, it's all over. I mean, we just saw in the past week the this, you know, the Court of Appeals. You know, push back on Attorney General Paxton's desire to get directly involved in election enforcement without being invited. yep, which I think, you know, frankly, probably surprised. I mean surprised me that they went in that direction. um yeah, given recent decisions, it would seem yeah. so. But I mean, but
1: the thing is to go back to this discussion about Texas and Abbott and democracy and all that. I mean, I think, you know, the voting stuff is is particularly interesting because to the extent that, you know, Abbott seemingly feels no constraints, you know, on his actions and Republicans, you know, around him seem to at least tacitly or actively, you know, engage in that. You know, that's where I think, you know, the other discussion this week was was going get around democracy was, you know, are Democrats going to figure out a way to get Manchin to come along on this voting stuff? Because it seemed, you know, again, that's a whole other thing. But it's seeming increasingly dire for Democrats. I think part of the reason, honestly, you know, is, is Texas. I mean, there's a lot of states that are doing this, or a lot of battleground states that are doing yeah. this. But if a state is big, as urban, as diverse as Texas, can basically kind of I will mean, just say, you know, willfully engage in discrimination, which it, which it is in terms of if you just look at the composition of the electoral districts that have been created in the race in a state that there's is some
0: senators that would be very offended by that language.
1: Well, I you know, <laughs> let's have a conversation, invite him to the podcast. I mean, I just, you know, explain how this works. So, I mean, I think, you know, I think that people are looking at Texas and thinking, okay, well, what's next is probably going to come out of Texas. And as of right now, when you look at Abbott, who seems to be completely unconstrained, I think that probably scares a lot of Democrats, both,
0: I think, in Texas, but
1: even at the national level at this point.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I, and I think that, you know, I understand why people are alarmed. I mean, I think, you know, we haven't, there's the whole piece out there about the coordinated efforts, Mm -hmm. you know, you mentioned, the the election officials, you know, about what this looks like as an ensemble of things and how worried we should be. And, you know, I mean, I think there is, there is reason to worry, but I would also, but I, but I think that, you know, we're going to learn a lot about that. As you say, Texas is going to be important in this and we're going to learn a lot about how that all ultimately looks next year you know next year i mean i i was uh you know i guess we ended the podcast this way last time so i won't won't go back to the you know you thought this year was bad yeah (laughs) you know but it's going to be a very interesting year next year um and we will be back with the podcast i don't know exactly when look for us probably second week of january if i had to guess right now i don't know what the calendar looks like so what what the days of the week fall back but um Thanks for all the support, both on the ground and when we were doing this virtually from the audio crew in the Liberal Arts Development Studio. Um, They're the best here at the University of Texas. Uh, Thanks to Josh for spending so much time on this. Thanks to you for listening, and we will be back uh, next year. Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.